So good afternoon or good day and welcome to the American Shipper Series of the Global Trade Tech Summit. This is the Fireside Chat with myself, Steve Ferreira. I'm CEO of Ocean Audit in Hartford, Connecticut. And today I have a very, very special guest. Matter of fact, this guest is very much in demand. And my good friend is on the other side of the fence here in California, Dan Gardner from Trade Facilitator. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. And to give the audience a little uh, flavor for Dan, uh, Dan runs and is CEO and president of Trade Facilitator, a supply chain consulting firm in California. Dan's clients are nationwide as of, as are Mayan. But one thing that Dan has in, in his pedigree, unlike myself, is Dan is a, a, has been a professor or is an adjunct professor at, um, fill us in, Dan, a little bit on where you've taught and before you do that, though, I do want to tell the audience one thing that Dan probably won't tell. I found out, Dan, that you were voted Professor of the Year at FIU. That's correct. You, you, you're going back a few years now, my friend. Well, you know, hey, listen, I got a lot more coming up in this fireside chat, so you better be ready. <laughs> yeah, that was, I, I want to say, um, this, uh, tragically, the semester, same same semester as 9-11, to be, to be honest with you. So that that uh, conjures up some obviously some not so pleasant memories, but was uh, fortunate enough to to gain that distinction. Uh, but to answer your previous question, I, I have been an adjunct professor my whole career, essentially everywhere I've lived uh, in Mexico when I lived there, in Colombia when I lived there, uh, but currently uh, Georgia Tech, Cal State Long Beach, and just wrapped up a six week certificate program online with Long Beach City College for International Transportation and Customs. Procedures, so that's that's a a big part of uh, what I like to do out in the business world. Congratulations! I mean, you know, I think that uh, I always uh, view your uh, presentations and speeches to uh, companies and uh, private groups around the United States and around the world as uh, leading edge and cutting edge. So I, I think it's great that uh, the American shipper has uh, chosen you to be on, on this fireside chat. As far as where I'm concerned, I'm not sure why they chose me, but I think that uh, having you in the audience today, or as I'm sorry, participating for our global audience to see is, is amazing, especially in light of all the things. Sorry. Yeah, I'm flattered to be here. Thank you. Oh, it's my honor to have you here and to uh, chat. We've known each other for a number of uh, years, and we've we worked together. And you know, our, our, we're pretty cozy in terms of I think each of our strengths. And I think that's one of the nice things about conversations that just flow kind of naturally, like like today's being. And you know, I, I started to think a little bit. I want to pivot a little bit of, about our conversation on um, kind of COVID and tariffs in China. And Dan, you know, I, I just ran some stats over the weekend that I found astonishing. I think you will too. Um, now, again, the naysayers will say, well, Steve, you know, you didn't take this in consideration or that, or you, you know, you ran the wrong time frame. But one of the things that I think is really important for the audience to know about is I like to look at the velocity of shipments moving. And to me, when I look at less than container load from China, if I look at full container loads, I'm still looking at the individual invoices that move on each of those particular uh, cargo segments. So one invoice might have four containers or it might have just, you know, 10 cubic meters, a small shipment. But to me, it's the velocity of how these invoices move. And what I wanted to report to you today and get your comment on right off the bat, because I think this is going to be a real surprise for the audience, is that from January to August of last year, 39 million invoices from China moved. This year, 
January through August, the same period, 42 million invoices moved. Now, one of the things that's really remarkable, Dan, about that, that I'd like to get your comment on, is not only have they moved, but they've moved at very much, as you said, higher rates, higher spot rates, and the ocean environment is just crunching it right now. So there's profits being made, you know, out the wazoo. The steamship lines are fat and happy. Cargo's coming in, but yet we have unemployment. We have retailer turmoil. We have non-essential, we have new vocabulary with non-essential retailers. And we also have Dan Gardner's 10 points of what to do in a COVID environment. So question, to reframe this all, why the improvement in volume right now? Who's paying for these so-called tariffs at, at the point that, you know, obviously the companies are, are able to handle these tariffs because the volumes are coming in like gangbusters? And how is it impacting the overall retail environment? Yeah, I, I think it's a two-part story. Um, needless to say, um, we, we learned the hard way uh, about uh, the PPE supply chain. So I, I think there's a lot of that in there, um, even though PPE is sourced in places in Asia other than China as well. So I think there's a big part of that. But the other part is, I, I think that uh, we living in a consumption society that retailers, traditional retailers, e-tailers, et cetera, are placing some pretty big bets on, on what people are going to buy uh, back to school, if, if we want to call it that anymore, at least not in a traditional sense. But of course, uh, gearing up for the holidays, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, Christmas time, Etc. I just think, and it, it's an opinion, that retailers are placing some companies in general are, are placing some pretty big bets in terms of what's going to be bought and paid for and consumed toward the end of the year. Um, how that pans out, we, we will have to wait and see. That's interesting, Dan. I know that uh, you had put together a great treatise on the top 10 things back in March as the pandemic was starting to uh, rear its ugly head here in the United States, 10 Ways to Prepare for gro uh, Global Trade Disruption was actually the name of the article that you had written. And it was just really a kind of a semi-crystal ball for, you know, what um, supply chain uh, participants would be seeing and going through as we navigate through the crisis. So I think your 10-point uh, your plan that you developed on navigating through COVID was right on. And I think that one of the things that we're starting to see, you know, in the first 60 days of COVID, COVID right, we saw the number one um, development or the need was to keep the supply chain organizations preserving cash and managing working capital. And then I think as we started to get a little bit beyond that, maybe maybe a little bit past your, your March philosophy, we're starting to see companies focusing more towards managing supplier risk and, and workplace planning. So I think that if you look at where you were coming from COVID and supply chain and and volumes coming in in March, and in light of the fact that you know now companies are having to, you know, kind of really band-aid this and and bring it down to a micro focus on managing suppliers and POs, almost on an intimate one by one basis. How would you give the audience some some tips in terms of how would you fill in what you wrote in March versus what they're dealing with now? And how might you project three or four months out in terms of where the volatility of the supply chain might be heading and what could clients do to mitigate that? Yeah, well, number one, I, I, I wish I never had to write that paper because um, one, one would think that especially four or five, whatever it is, six months later, that, that uh, we would be talking 
and, and in a little more sanguine terms, a little more hopeful, a little more optimistic. But I, I think we're we're going to be in this for for a bit. Um, what, one of the big things that surprised me, um, I, I think it was fairly obvious that that ocean rates were going to go up to the extent that the carriers could manage supply and finally pull together in the face of an existential threat uh, to their own financial viability and stand their ground on rates. Um, that they've gone well beyond that uh, in terms of, of their ability to, to control supply, uh, meaning blanking sailings and such, uh, and, and getting to the point now where, where the rates are, you could use the word abusive, I, I think, uh, especially given the circumstances. Um, so as far as what, what I would recommend to people is, is plan for the long term. Um, I, I, would, I wouldn't, geez, you know, it's kind of, it's hard to say, but hard to predict the future. But plan for the long term, plan for rates to be high th- through November. Don't negotiate any rates until a little further into next year. I mean, typically, you know this, ocean freight contracts get start to talk in you know, March, April timeframe. Um, you might want to wait a little bit longer, see, see how things pan out for next year. Now that gets hard to do because you run the risk of if you wait too long, then there won't be any space available on ships or through NVOCCs. But I'd, I'd, I'd wait a little bit longer, take a non-traditional approach to, to contract management and contract negotiation going into next year because I, I, I think this big boom is going to be followed by a pretty substantial dip. Um, Speaking of those dips, you know, right now we're dealing with something that we, I don't think we as uh, supply chain professionals, uh, ocean professionals, uh, logistics pros have ever seen before. And that's really the kind of the intersection of, of COVID, right? With not only, um, you know, unrational markets, but also tariff issues, right? So now this whole thing kind of pivots back to, you know, where China tariffs are, right? And you have Biden come out recently that says that, uh, you know, he originally made a soundbite kind of miscue that said he's going to do away with uh, the Trump tariffs. And then his, his spokesman came out and said, you know, on day one of his administration, he would monitor that situation quite carefully. So I guess, Dan, how would you reframe, you know, you're, you're a CFO, you're a logistics professional, you're a supply chain professional, And I see this every day in my practice, right? There's a conversation taking place between a finance side of things and logistics side of things. So when finance says to logistics, why are you cost, why are these cost overruns happening? I want you to control these carriers. And then what the CFO has maybe forgotten about is that, you know, a lot of these cost overruns are built into the fact that they've been silently absorbing the tariffs all these times. And so I guess from an intersection of where you see and you consult with clients, how are clients taking the tariffs? How are they dealing with the intersection of tariffs and COVID and increased supply chain costs? And what tips could you give the audience for enhancing or reducing those? Because those inevitable conversations between finance and logistics are taking place every day. Logistics is get, get it, getting beat up horribly because maybe the C-suite doesn't fully comprehend about some of these changes. Comments and, and thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I think... That, that companies, the importers, and their overall business are, are watching their their gross margins and their net margins erode. Um, you start with the the section the section three hundred one tariffs, you know, more commonly known as the Trump tariffs. Uh, popular to, to beliefs in some circles, the Chinese don't pay for the tariffs; the importer does. Um, might the Chinese might Chinese vendors suffer because U.S. importers look to buy goods in other countries? 
That's 100% true. But equally true is the fact that the importer pays the tariffs. That's just unequivocal and disingenuous for anyone to say otherwise. So you, you had margins being depleted because landed costs are, are going up. Now you add to that the, the increase in ocean freight o- over double than what it was a year ago. You, you just can't escape the math that, that companies that were enjoying some pretty substantial gross margins have watched those margins erode. And, and of course, the, the, the irony uh, and the tragedy of part of COVID, uh, and if you want to look at it from a cynical sense, companies were compelled and, and justifiably compelled to, to furlough people, which take, takes away from the payroll expense. So that payroll expense, the reduction thereof, is somewhat compensating for the, the loss in margin due to increased ocean freight expense and the Trump tariffs. And, and that is, is an unintended consequence of pretty epic proportions because, you know, in the end for an economy, who, who wants to save money by creating unemployment? That just doesn't make any sense. And, you know, you hit the nail on the head. I, I definitely want to spend a part of our uh, time in the next couple minutes after we get through a few topics on that whole issue of being furloughed. I mean, I live it and see it every day. And I mean, I see clients that have a department of 10 down to two, and they're doing a heck of a job. And their leadership says, well, why do we need the other eight to begin with? And I totally get where this is a real slippery slope. And I want to come back and address it because I think was part of our rebuilding for Americana and small business and import export. And you know, I've talked about it ad nauseum in our private talks. You know, we really need to develop the the interior point factories in Ohio and, and in the cornfields in Nebraska. And, you know, we need to get people back to work. And there may be a strategy that we can we can talk about in a, in a few minutes. But before we do that, though, I want to kind of segue back to, um, you know, a talk that we had uh, a few months back right around before COVID happened and the movement away from China into other countries. And I think one of the things that I've seen, you know, you look at a survey like uh, Gardner. Gardner did a group survey and they said, a third of um, companies plan to move uh, either entirely or out of China by 2023. And uh, then um, the American Chamber in uh, China, American Chamber of Commerce said that, no, not at all. You know, 84% of our members say no movement, no movement at all. And another 72% say, no, even with COVID, we're going to stick with China. So there's a really, really, really mixed message in terms of where people are moving away. And if you talk about the numbers I talked about a few minutes ago, in terms of the velocity of shipments, nothing seems to have changed. China seems to have grown and grown, and this steamroller keeps going. So put it in context for us, Dan. How are moves away from China feasible, and why aren't we seeing it in these numbers? Because quite frankly, Vietnam can only handle so much growth. So where are these people moving to, and when when will we start to see it reflected in the volumes? Yeah, I, I think there's some assumptions built into the whole uh, leave China theory, and, and we can unwrap that fairly quickly. Uh, number one, uh, you know, sourcing, overseas sourcing is different from purchasing. Purchasing is just that, placing purchase orders on vendors. But to get to that point, you have to vet these vendors over a period of two to, two to three years in terms of production capacity the type of products that a given vendor makes, be they in China or anywhere, for that matter. R&D considerations. Are we providing molds? What's the unit cost? What's the landed cost? The the list goes on and on and on. So I will say that I'm a little bit surprised that people haven't left China sooner because the Section 301 tariffs have been around for 
couple couple years now. But the, the question becomes, and this addresses your Vietnam comment, um, where are you going to go? Because China has a 40-year head start in terms of production capacity and diversity of products that they make. I've seen a number of companies make assumptions. We do a lot of work in Latin America. I lived in Mexico for four years and still do a fair amount of work down there. Companies that just say, uh, we want to leave China and go to Mexico. Well, that's a good strategy. But... Does the product or products you're looking for, are they even made in Mexico? If they are, where do the raw materials come from? Because they're likely coming from China, depending on what they are. What's the production capacity? What's the, quali what's the quality? What, what's the, the unit cost, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And albeit anecdotal, what, what I've seen repeatedly, and it, so when you see something repeatedly, it goes from anecdotal to being a pattern of, of outcomes, is, is that depending on the industry, let's use Mexico as an example, well, let's go back to Vietnam. They're just inundated. Let's start with that because they were choice number one, and they don't have the diversity of products that a China has. Moving on to Mexico, I've spoken with potential vendors in Mexico on behalf of our clients, and I've had several of them literally chuckle into the phone and say, do you really think you're the first person calling me about this? Everybody in the brother is trying to move into Mexico, and Mexico, while a good, strong market, does not have the production capacity or the diversity of industries that a China has. Nobody does. And, and I think that's a big part of the, the situation. People are willing to go, but, um, you know, where are you going to, where are you going to go to becomes the question. I saw, I saw, I saw today is exciting news that you talked about Mexico. I'm so glad that the way we, we flow this conversation makes so much sense. You know, we've got about uh, a couple minutes left in our show today. And I think one of the things in a quick 30 second hit, hit here is, I noticed that Foxconn uh, today announced that they're looking into Mexico and exploring um, any kind of financial incentives. But when they talk about that, that Dan, are they just basically talking about the provisions within the J July 1 USMCA, or are there potential other financial incentives that uh, companies might get going to Mexico? 30 seconds. Yeah, I think, the, I think the answer is both. So USMCA, obviously, you have to meet regional value content requirements. Uh, you can bring in raw materials from, from outside of the, the free trade area, but it has to meet specific products have to meet regional value content thresholds. In addition to that, the, the zero duty benefit, um, it is very likely the, that the Mexican government would offer other types of incentives, uh, be, be they tax-related, hiring-related, et cetera. So, yeah, I, the answer is it's both. And uh, we talked about uh, helping our friends that uh, were displaced. And you, you made a great topic or point about people that were furloughed. I like the idea too, Dan, and it's something we could develop for the audience now and maybe through uh, additional American shipper uh, um, um, publication uh, or, or media overview. But the whole idea of fractional leadership, you know, we're out of place to very senior logistics people can go ahead and manage the logistics departments for 8, 10, 12 small vendors around the country on a fractional basis. I think this is not looked at strong enough, and uh, I'd love your, uh, your comments in 15 seconds about fractional leadership in logistics. I, I think it's a great concept, and, and I'll be honest with you, I hadn't really not known that much about it until you brought it up last week when we were preparing and such. So I think that there's a, a lot of intellectual capital out there that can be put to good work to the benefit of, of the entire country. So 100% support that idea, should be explored. Great. I think we should definitely uh, make that another, another uh, caveat as we continue our series of discussions. 
Uh, you've been talking, we've been talking in a fireside, fireside chat with Steve Ferreira, CEO, that's me, Ocean Audit, with Dan Gardner, uh, President of Trade Facilitators, that's him. And I want to thank the American Shipper for having us in our great, in this great tech summit. And I wish all our supply chain participants and logistics participants a great show. And Dan and I will always be available to address any questions or comments you have, and we'll gladly go and expand any of these topics. So for now, Dan, thank you for being my guest. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. And, Amer and American Shipper, thank you for having us. It's been an honor. And to all the, the, the people out there, continue good luck, stay safe in COVID, and we wish you great prosperity. This is Steve Ferrer signing off and Dan Gardner signing off for now. Thanks, guys.